my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time the legacy of the British Empire as seen through the eyes of Alex Renton whose book Blood Legacy traces his own family's complicity in the enslavement and death of thousands of African people on sugar plantations in the Caribbean. We gave the slaves their freedom in 1834. What we gave was very little, no compensation which the owners got, and no land. And we kept those Caribbean nations as client states of the British trading system for the next 100 years. So we left them without infrastructure, pretty much without education, but still as customers of British goods. So that story doesn't stop at 1834. We went on profiting because we trapped all these Africans in the Caribbean with no chance of leaving, uh, who were totally dependent on us for anything that they couldn't grow at home themselves. We'll have an in-depth interview with Alex shortly as we examine the history of slavery, its links to empire and its legacy today. First, a reminder that the Byline Times isn't told what to say by any media mogul or corporate interest. We can tell it like it is because we're funded by subscribers to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Subscriptions also support our brilliant news-breaking website and Byline TV. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, the legacy of slavery and the centuries of empire building that went with it. We'll talk specifically about Britain's role in all of this shortly, but it's worth noting that Germany has just agreed to give more than a billion euros to its former colony, Namibia, to compensate for the death of around 60,000 indigenous people between 1904 and 1908, in what is generally considered to have been the first genocide of the 20th century. The proposal hasn't been universally welcomed in the African nation, with representatives of the two indigenous groups affected saying they were largely excluded from talks between their government and officials in Berlin. Still, it is a positive sign of a major European power grappling with its imperial past, whereas we in Britain, it seems to me, are stuck in a time warp with many people viewing our empire with a dewy-eyed nostalgia. Or, if we don't look back on it with affection, that's because we don't know much about it at all. What Satnam Sanghera, the author of Empire Land, describes as a collective amnesia. One of the expressions that amnesia is the fact that we don't understand why we have multiculturalism, you know? We have a multicultural society today is because we have a, had a multicultural empire. All the debates about multiculturalism fail to really forget that the British host nation has a duty towards those people who came here, to remember there's centuries-long relationships. There's a profound reason why we're here. And I think that's why the amnesia is a problem. It creates huge problems with racism and understanding who we are. Satnam Sanghera talking recently on this podcast. In another episode of the podcast, Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu recalled that her parents, who had experience of empire growing up variously in Kenya and India, described how it had left them feeling conflicted. Her mum and dad were aware of atrocities committed abroad in this country's name, but they nevertheless voted for Brexit because they identified with Britain much more closely than with Europe. My parents voted to leave the EU because of what I have described and written about is this very interesting love-hate relationship with Britain. So my dad grew up in British Kenya. He liked 
the fact that he learnt English and that he could listen to BBC Radio 4, that he read Time magazine. He actually liked his life there. His family were Indians who were brought to Kenya to build the railways there. And so my dad grew up there. He liked it. I mean, he'd pass beautiful safari on the way to school, have days off in Mombasa. He really loved it. But both him and my mother came to this country, saw it as the mother country. You know, they they felt British. They feel British. They're proud to be British. And I think that that was why that dynamic existed. They voted for Brexit because they don't they don't identify as European. They don't see any real links between Europe and Britain. They feel British. They like in, in many respects what Britain has given to them. But at the same time, there's another dynamic playing out, which is, so growing up, I was aware of the empire because I would be told about the Amritsar massacre at Jallianwalabad in the Punjab in India and other atrocities that occurred and colonial, the violence, the inherent violence of colonialization or, or even the colour bar that my dad, as he described it as a colour bar, had to, had to put up with in Kenya. So I was always informed by my parents that the British being in India or Kenya was not just a positive thing, that there were things that were really wrong about that. And in that way, my parents also therefore felt that Britain owes people like them its allegiance, not necessarily people who are from Europe, but that there's something about having been subjects of the empire, if you like, that meant that that should be recognised in a deeper way than European migrants who were coming. And so it was very complex. You know, on one hand, they love Britain and they feel very British, but they also fear that it did some things that were very wrong. Among the grave wrongs committed in the name of empire was the enslavement of millions of African people who were forced to work on plantations in the Americas, including the Caribbean. Between the 16th and early 19th centuries, Britain was responsible for transporting more than 3 million Africans for this purpose, with at least 400,000 dying en route. Those who survived the journey generally died within the first four or five years. The total number of enslaved Africans transported by European traders was at least 12 million people. Kahindi Andrews, author of The New Age of Empire, told this podcast that the idea that some races were superior to others, which was used to justify slavery, ironically gained pseudo-scientific support during the Enlightenment period of the 18th century. White supremacy becomes like, actually gets worse in the Enlightenment, because previously it was religious explanations, but the Enlightenment, that great age of reason, that's where you get the justification that I'm not a human being, that I'm Actually, in my genetics, I'm not a human being. Racial science until prior to the Second World War was basically just accepted as science. And these were accepted accepted things. And so what happens is that justifies the exploitation of black and brown. And you still have the same justification today, again, even though it looks slightly different. So think about the UN, for example, which is, I guess, the most progressive of these institutions, which looks at global inequality, but <laughs> never talks about race. But if you actually look at global inequality... Africa is the poorest part of the, of the world, sub-Saharan Africa, the place where white people live are the richest, right? And then you have this kind of hierarchy in between. The global economy is, is literally white supremacy. And then we have a, a body that talks about global inequality and never talks about race. I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem, right? That we don't even acknowledge what's really blatantly in front of our eyes. Professor Kahindi Andrews from Birmingham City University 
The idea that the impact of empire and slavery lives on today is examined in Alex Renton's brilliant new book, Blood Legacy, Reckoning with the Family Story of Slavery, in which he interrogates his ancestors' ownership of sugar plantations in the Caribbean, which relied on enslaved people from Africa doing the hard work. First, though, I wanted to know a little more about Alex himself. I'm a member an average member of the British upper class, as you might say. In my parents, quite wealthy, both the kind of people who know their history going back several generations. One Scots, one mainly English. I grew up in Sussex, eldest of five. Idyllic childhood till I was sent to boarding school at the age of eight, which became the opposite of idyllic. And then Eton, kicked out of Eton. My dad was a Tory MP, a minister under Margaret Thatcher. And from really quite an early age, I and my siblings were sort of left wing in possibly in opposition to him, though he quite enjoyed that, actually, to be fair. So, I, you know, I had one of those great, weird educations that the privileged get in this country, very partial. I did two history O-levels. I knew a lot about American slavery history, but absolutely zero about British slavery history, to my eternal shame. But I think looking back, we were all people you're my age, were a victim of, of a propaganda system about the empire. Absolutely. I'd confess that my knowledge of slavery, other than the fact that the British did a great job in yes. abolishing slavery, people like William Wilberforce, we weren't told the other side. That wasn't our fault, although I think now we have to own it and take responsibility for, for what we do know. How did you come to knowledge then of your own family's history, your ancestors' history? of enslavement? Well, my mother's father, who was a man called Sir James Ferguson, the chief of the clan Ferguson, was a historian and a journalist, quite an eminent historian in the mid-20th century. He was keeper of the Scottish Records Office, uh, head of it. And he also wrote books on this a mass of papers that his own family had amassed, really from the 17th century onwards, because they were significant in Scottish politics and British politics for a while, really through to the 19th century. And he had partially catalogued some of this massive archive, which was still you know, in the family's hands. And I was digging in that because my last book was about boarding schools and the effects of those on Britain and its ruling class. And I was intrigued. My mother's family had had 11 generations of kids had been sent off to boarding school in order to learn to rule the empire. But while going through my grandfather's catalogue of this massive documents in a cellar, I just found more and more references to Jamaica and Tobago. And I sort of went, what? Had heard nothing about this. It's about four years ago. And I asked my mum and she said, well, her dad had shown us some lists of enslaved people and said, this is awful, but console yourself because everyone was doing it at the time, meaning everyone like them. And we didn't make much money and we didn't do it for very long. You know, I'm an investigative journalist. I couldn't possibly not get straight in there to find out what actually was happening. We were ordinary owners of plantations and enslaved people, briefly traffickers in them from Africa as well. But it had gone on for a long time. We, the Jamaica, there's two plantations, one in Tobago, one in Jamaica. The Jamaica one we'd owned from the 1760s through to 1875. So you get the whole story of late period, the boom that when British slavery was 12% of GDP for the country and right through emancipation and, and then the, the sort of disaster of post-emancipation Caribbean countries when we abandoned them, neglected the people who had worked for us. So it enabled me to tell all that story. 
I felt initially that the story is very worth telling because my ancestors were highly educated, liberal, MPs in, in the Liberal, the Whig Party, reformers, philosophers, members of the so-called Scottish Enlightenment. I mean, my ancestor, the chief ancestor, Sir Adam Ferguson, who ran the plantations 45 years, knew David Hume, he knew the economist Adam Smith, and he knew lots of people who were against slavery on moral grounds as well. So they were more interesting than the kind of Quentin Tarantino overseer, frothing rapist monster. But what they did was no less wrong today and then, which is important. It was clearly wrong then to many other Britons. We all get accused of judging those men by standards of today, but no, they were modern men. The moral universe in which they operated was the same as today's, essentially. Yeah, there were people amongst their peers, amongst the wider public, who were from pretty early on saying that enslaving other human beings is a bad thing to do. It's not a Christian thing to do. And yet your forebears, who were intelligent, informed people of their age, somehow managed to shrug that off and carry on making profit from it. And that's really interesting because if you, by the 1790s, you look at the anti-slavery movement and it's a, it's a mass popular movement, perhaps the first one of, of modern Britain, led by women in many ways and led by the middle class. In some ways, it was the Brexit of its era, other views on Brexit, but it, in that it, it was an anti-elite movement so that the ruling elite are doing something wrong and our governments are abetting them in it. And by 1790, Petitions with hundreds of thousands of signatures were arriving. So this is totally of its time a popular argument. And my ancestors, who actually weren't making that much money, it was the bankers who made the real slavery fortunes. Plantation owners, you know, you kind of think, well, actually, it was a lot of hassle and you could have invested in Scotland and done better. British government did better out of taxes, from what I can see from the accounts, than, they, than my ancestors did in profits. So they made this moral choice, and this is where it gets really important when we think about today, that this is the right thing to do, and treating Africans as animals, as farm animals, was a morally decent thing to do. And that parallel between African people and farm animals is very clear, isn't it, in these meticulous documents that chronicle the buying, the selling, the deaths, and so on. Black people from Africa who are working on these plantations in the Caribbean are treated as if they're cows or donkeys. They're just another asset on the farm. Yes, uh, it, it's very clear in the doc. They look like modern accountancy records, except in spreadsheets and so on, except that they're written in longhand. But So you get a list of children in an inventory from 1777 with their values, should they be sold alongside them, and immediately below on the same page, a list of mules, cattle and goats with their values as well. So their status is really clear. The Africans, and almost all in that era, because the death rate was so high, were newly imported from Africa. Given new names, sort of joke names like Othello or Romeo, their African names expunged, and then bred from and worked to death like mules and horses. And my ancestor, my Enlightenment ancestor, very interested in the lot of the poor in 18th and 19th century Scotland, would write to the managers, he never went to Jamaica, would write to his managers in Jamaica saying, 
ah, the abolition bill might go through soon, so the prices of slaves are going to go up, buy more young women. It's really totally clear. And then from there, you have to go, okay, he was a Christian. He talks about the rights of man. He believes in the rights of man, one of the great themes. That, so he did not believe the Africans were humans at all. And that's where the racism starts. And I think this is really interesting. I read a review in The Guardian which said that the business argument or the business case of slavery has thankfully long disappeared. But the ideology of enslaving other human beings, the racism that in those days justified it and underpinned it, sadly, is still with us 200 years on. You know, obviously, having read these papers, went to Jamaica and Tobago, you know, virtually none of my family ever had to go to the places where we'd enslave people and see what was going on then and talk to the people and ask what they thought. And when you talk to people, really anywhere in, in the former enslavement countries and say, young and old, what do you most feel slavery today? They go, colorism. I interview a young woman who's a historian, actually, in Tobago, and, and she said, you know, that all my life I have suffered. I have a darker skin than my sister, and that means I have to work harder to get forward in life, and I'm more patronised, and I'm assumed to be bad, she put it. And that comes directly from the structures that were used to manage the plantations. If you have white blood in you, which many did, because the white workers were at liberty to have sex with the, the black, the African enslaved women, rape them you have to assume really then then you had higher status and that has not changed in these societies that are as people tell you still toxified by what we did there the racism the necessary the, the bureaucratic racism which the british brought to the whole of the empire and th that kind of sexual element as well of enslaving other human beings you devote quite a fair bit of yeah. the book to that because it's clear that, as you say, in some cases, people could be, women could be raped. They could be taken as what were called concubines, but clearly there was no element of choosing to be where they were. So this perhaps in some cases was making the, the best of a bad job. The desire to breed, I mean, this sounds horrific, doesn't it? The desire to breed African slaves from within the enslaved mm. population of the Caribbean. And the scale of venereal disease, of sexually transmitted mm. infection that went with that, which ironically mitigated against the desire to have more children amongst the enslaved population. Yes, absolutely. Um, no, I do go into detail about it. And that was a sort of difficult choice, really, because a number of friends who have African heritage said to me, I really don't want to read more slavery porn. I've had enough. They said, I'm interested in your book, they said, because I'm interested in how you white people are going to heal yourselves of what you did, because it's not over. But I then realized from a lot of white friends, people like me, educated, you know, educated in quotes, badly educated, but, but privileged. You know, so many people going, but was it so bad being a slave? At least you had Christian, Mar you know, you went back in Africa in the jungle, the mercy of wild animals, you know, this sort of stuff. And you really had to say, no, it was really bad in both a day-to-day -day life and also in a sort of existential way. So the day-to-day -day life is whipping threats, backbreaking work, about an average lifespan of four to five years as an adult. And the existential one is not owning yourself or your children. And it is really important to stress this 
because people go, oh, slavery this, or so modern slavery. You get, no, this was sui generis. It's a state-licensed, policed, and subsidized industry that removes people from humanity. And it's not like other exploitations. So I do go into to quite a lot of detail about that. And it, it's gross and regrettable. But I think we are a big, ignorant, self-entitled, self-satisfied white country from what I can see. I couldn't agree with you more about the need to explain the the sexual elements of it. It is gross, it is horrifying, but it, in no way is it pornography because there's nothing titillating about it. Anybody reading that would just be appalled that other human beings could systemically treat other human beings yeah. in this way. No, absolutely. It, no, good. I'm, well, thank you for saying that. I'm glad. I, I think, you know, you have to go, these Christian men, white men, shipped out, many of them, you know, not rich, but going out to work as, you know, Robert Burns, the Scottish poet, nearly went to make a fortune in the West Indies, arriving to be told they could use the black women, the African enslaved women, as they wished on all the plantations. And then their children would be property of the owner and could be sold away from them. And, and I have a couple of stories in the book about that happening, which is intriguing too. It is more nuanced as well, though, isn't it, than that? Not that it's anything other than appalling, but clearly some human relationships developed mm. here, didn't they? And there were some people involved in the plantations who sought to buy their concubines, for want of a better of a word, out of slavery or sought to buy their own children yes. out of slavery, having to pay huge sums of money because these enslaved people were very useful still to the plantation owners. My ancestor in, in a letter plainly says, well, it, it does seem a bit harsh, but I gather the normal rule is the price of one adult male African for um, every child, however small, so we're going to do that. And that results in a, a white carpenter he employed managing to free two of his children, but not the other two and not the mother. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to waste any tears over the sadnesses of a, of a white carpenter in, in Jamaica. Yeah. And the thing missing from the book, as you know, is and many of these books, is the stories of the enslaved people. We took away their names and we then sat on their histories and interpreted it, what we know of them, and interpreted it in, in our way as, as a, a great white triumph. Um, and those are still lacking and denied to the people I met in Jamaica and Tobago and people here as well, of course. And there are literally four, I think, published accounts of, first-hand accounts of being a slave under the British in the 18th century. And they're quite famous. And they were published by abolitionists and did an awful lot for the cause. But this is not like that at all. And this is the story of a man called Caesar, though he changed his name to Augustus Thompson. He would have not known his, forgotten his real African name who ran away from the plantation in Jamaica. He was senior. He was the vet and the, the doctor. He called himself Dr. Dr. Caesar. He would have had some privileges. And he had a common-law wife and children and mother on the plantation too. So she would have been born in Africa, Fortuna, his mother, not him. He was born in Jamaica. But So he runs away, as people did, under pain of death, and turns up six months later in London, on a wintry night in St. James's at my ancestor's door. My ancestor, who may never have met a black person at all, let alone been to Jamaica. And he brings with him a dictated deposition, which I've got now is in the papers, signed with his ex. And, and it's a very, quite legalistic account of a row in which he fell out with one of the junior white overseers on the plantation and the man took revenge 
and burnt Caesar Augustus Thompson's house, stole all his possessions, whipped him and his wife and children, after which Caesar ran away. And my ancestor, you know, who is a lawyer, looks at this, and it's an amazing account because it's got alibis and evidence and who you could ask this person about what really happened because, you know, and goes, right, okay, uh, well, so as long as you return to your duty on the plantation. And Augustus Thompson was free in England because you couldn't be a slave in England by seven, the 1780s. If you go back, I will make sure that you're um, not punished. And presumably lured by the fact that his wife and children are there, um, he does indeed get on a ship and goes back to Jamaica. And in the interim, Sir Adam Ferguson, this honourable man, this MP, writes to the manager going, oh, you know, do what you like with him. <laughs> and you, again, you go, you're a man of your word and honour and all those things that were so important. Though the black man trusted you for justice and went to you as the boss, giving your word to an African is of no importance at all. And your ancestor, Sir Adam Ferguson, he was obviously an intelligent man, as you've said. He was a, an Enlightenment Scot. He was an MP. There was a mass public campaign against slavery, so he would have heard the arguments against slavery. How do, how do you kind of get inside his head to square the fact that whilst all this was going on in his world, you know, it was part of his moral universe, he was still writing letters to overseers on plantations in the Caribbean telling them to behave as they wished, even to a man like that who'd come to him seeking justice. Yeah, and telling them to buy more young women, to breed more, getting in a rage when the death toll was particularly high one year, but in the rage that someone would be if his tractor had been smashed. It's, it's the sort of central tension of the story because he was much loved, liked. His dealings with his tenants in Scotland, he appears to have been actually a liberal landlord who did a lot to improve the land and so on. And the family loved him. He was a bachelor. He never married. And he wasn't making a fortune out of, he was paying more in taxes to the British government. It was the bankers who made the real slavery fortunes. But, you know, it was, he was making about 10% of his income came from the plantation. He could have got out. He had neighbours. He was a Christian. He had Church of Scotland ministers who he knew who were saying slavery must end. So he just decided not to. And I, I don't, I'm deeply intrigued by it. And, and I wonder if, it's only because even today, the kind of resistance you get from sort of old white men against questioning their life choices about history and how they result. You know, I wonder if it was that sort of thing. Bloody people lecturing me, telling me, I'm going to go on doing what I've always done. Whether it was just obstruction. It, it's really troubling because he, I do feel an affinity with him. He's a, he was a modern man. I mean, I understand his moral universe. And, and the men who, his, my grandfathers who inherited from him, you know, into the Victorian age then, which is really not so very unlike ours. And, and they were active philanthropists. There are churches and schools up and down the coast around Edinburgh, where I live, that they had built for, for poor fishermen in the 1830s. But they did nothing for the black people soon to be emancipated in Jamaica at all. No, and there's a kind of parallel, I suppose, with the Nazi prison guard, somebody who, in a sense, is only doing their duty yes. in accordance with the lights of the country they live in and the government of the day. There's an added layer here, though, because nobody made you go out and be no. a plantation owner. There was the added bonus for you that you could potentially make a lot of money from it. And even if your family, if, if Sir Adam Ferguson didn't make a lot of money out of it, lots of people did make money out of it. 
No, and actually, he would have made a lot of money if he'd sold up because the land values went up massively. And if he'd sold up at the right point, he would have done pretty well. No, I think, as you know, there are lots of parallels with the Holocaust and, and you know, and the attempt to exterminate uh, European Jewry by the Germans. And that is certainly one of them. I mean, you think of ha- Hannah Arendt's phrase about the banality of evil and, and you know, the, the sort of accountancy of evil, which you see in the papers I dug up, is just gruesome you know it's an efficiently run business of exploiting human beings as animals i find them both i can empathize with them i can i can see where they're coming from and they're also utterly extraordinary in those cho- choices they made those ancestors but i think it, it's really important for us to see them as real people and it's important for today i mean i'm so bored of being told that i'm judging my ancestors by the um, standards of yesteryear and that's not fair you get no no I'm not half the nation was massive including actually one of my rent and great grandmothers in Edinburgh were abolitionists the, taking the other course was perfectly feasible and clear and as we were discussing within 10 years the Brits were busily getting slavery is the worst thing in the whole world but we led the world in abolishing it and the propaganda and the the whitewash if that's the right word start well, that brings me to your grandfather, because your grandfather, who was a historian by yeah. trade and had collated all of these documents going back to slaving times, but that knowledge that he'd somehow brought into this store in the cellar of the family home had not then been transmitted yes. to later generations like you, this, as you describe it, propaganda that says Britain were great slavery abolitionists, but not great enslavers of other people. To what extent was your grandfather culpable? Or was that a was that a bigger was that a bigger project to again to use your phrase to to whitewash history? Yeah, I I think he was a member of that, you know, he was a professional historian. But I you know, I I read a you know the Sunday Times newspaper's most famous columnist. Couple, I'm not going to name him, but a couple of weeks ago going, everyone knows that the British spent far more it's not a good impersonation. I think you know who I'm talking about. Uh, um, far more, oh, Jeremy Clarkson. Yes, exactly. Uh, far <laughs> more uh, policing the end of slavery than they ever did they made from slavery. And you go, I'm sorry, 3.25 million Africans transported by the British over 250 years, 12% of GDP at the beginning of the 19th century. And you really think a few Navy ships hammering up and down the west coast of Africa sees that through and can i say jeremy that also when they freed those enslaved people off the ships they didn't take them back to their countries they took them to st helena and then jamaica where they became indentured laborers anyway it's a really crude whitewash and it's funny because if you you know as many black people will say if you applied it to the history of germany in the 30s and the 40s in the same way you would be a holocaust denier it was a genocidal act. 14 million Africans enslaved and murdered over that period. And the British more deeply in than any other European nation than the Portuguese, far more than the French, Spanish, Americans. You've touched on, I think, one of the most important themes of the book, which is that regardless of the fortunes of individual plantation owners, Britain today still benefits from the dividend of slavery it powered the empire and we're still feasting on that wealth now there's a debate among serious historians about this but 
The consensus is that the money coming out of the slavery-related industries, and that includes gun makers in Birmingham who were making a million guns or 100,000 guns a year to ship to West Africa, fuels the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. There's a sort of kind of old joke in Scotland about posh families going, they got out of slavery and into railway shares because there was this immense payout at the end of slavery as compensation in 1836. So and it, it's apparent to me in families like mine and many others in Scotland, and Scotland was deeper in it per capita than England, that while we, you may not consider us wealthy in Roman Abramovich terms, our lives are powered by the privilege that came from those not very many generations of, of being in power. I can't point to anything in my family that's this. I can say this is slavery wealth, but I can point you to it. You know, we're a range of people, I and mean, there are doctors and teachers and an NHS worker and so on. But but I can point you at privilege, and it's very apparent that, and and very easily found out that a lot of the wealthy and ruling class in Britain today, their wealth comes from that period. And Britain's had no revolution, you know. For five hundred, for four hundred years, so we're still in charge. But you see in the detailed accounts that are laid out in the book that the stores that people lived on, the mm. supplies that fed the plantations, came from Britain. You know, people were sending over fish and meat and rope, and as you say, guns. All of the things that that sustained the plantations were industries in yes. Britain, which then had significant momentum, which then carried them forward, enabled them to grow, gave them capital to invest and become major industries over the following decades. No, absolutely. And the infrastructure appears across the west of Scotland that are still used that were built in the 1790s, 1800s to ship pickled herring straight to the plantations. And the other end of that, you have to remember, is, is really important. We gave the slaves their freedom in 1834. What we gave was very little, no compensation, which the owners got, and no land. And we kept those Caribbean nations as client states of the British trading system for the next 100 years. So we left them without infrastructure, pretty much without education, but still as customers of British goods. So that story doesn't stop at 1834. We went on profiting because we trapped all these Africans in the Caribbean with no chance of leaving, uh, who were totally dependent on us for anything that they couldn't grow at home themselves. So it does. It really doesn't end. And, and the, the good thing about, because my family owned the plantation till 1875, is you can tell a bit of that story, which is, I think, just, it, it's another vicious exploitation in its turn and whose damage you can see very visibly today. We know precious little even through these very meticulous catalogue documents from your family about the lives of enslaved people themselves that's remarkable isn't it there, there's precious little about what they did how they socialized yeah if indeed at all you know it's 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 a pretty blank page again shaming i mean there's clearly no more interest in how they socialized in their culture than there would be in farm animals this some psychological interest, you know, people do say interesting things like it's not a good idea to, this was suggested to transport 80 slaves from Tobago to Jamaica because it's very upsetting for them and they won't work very well. <laughs> so that you could say the same of, you know, don't move the sheep from that field to that field because they're used to this one. I mean, it's 
there's no interest at all. And I think, again, when we talk about the racism today that derives from that period, I find every naysay, and I've had a lot of arguments about this book, including in my own family, as you'd expect, those who argue that this history is unimportant or shouldn't be tampered with have no interest in the feelings of the people at the other end of the story. They're not mentioned. Or how it might feel for a, a black person who knows that they're the child of an enslaved, and if you come from the Caribbean, you are. How it feels to walk past a high school named for someone who, who made their fortune in slavery. And to be told that your feelings about that are totally unimportant. Another of the many, many echoes of the slavery period that is still true today. A lack of care or interest for those who were exploited and their descendants. When you came to understand the full horror of slavery and your ancestors' role in it, which was obviously coming to you quite late in the day, relatively speaking, in your life, how did that impact upon you? There's something about opening a document in the in the basement of the house you used to play in as a child, you know, visiting the grandparents, you know, which lists children's prices versus that of horses. Nothing will ever be the same, you know, and it's physically nauseating. But hey, I'm not going to put up my suffering against, you know, I'm the privileged one. I know what happened. Enslaved people, the children, the descendants of enslaved people don't know what happened because we stole their history and their names as well. If you're a Jamaican who now wants to research that and find out more, you can't even get a visa to come here. But what it did sent me and, and, and a lot of my family, and, and I'm pleased to say some readers of the book, is to start saying what can and should we do. I, there's a great campaigner in Scotland, a man called Sir Geoffrey Palmer, who is trying to wake up the Scots to their history and its ongoing significance. And he has a lovely line. He says, you can't change that history, but you can still change its consequences. So I think some of us are beginning to think the only thing we can do with this shame and this sort of uprooting of what we thought about our noble and glorious forefathers is turn it into positive action, even in a small way. And you've done that in practical terms, as I understand it, by donating the advance from your book and any royalties from it to charities in the Caribbean. Yeah, and in UK as well. And many other members of my family have now joined in that. And it's tiny, it's small, it's totally inadequate. There is no way of paying back for those thousand people. Nothing, we can't begin to do it. But I think, you know, and I asked a lot of people in the Caribbean what they thought I and the family should do. And they said, acknowledgement would be nice. Britain's never apologised. And hey, you're, we're still much poorer than you. Is that fair? So you go, yeah, so that is something. This morning, I had two more emails from people who've now read the book and said, hey, I had been thinking that I need to do something and, and can we talk or where could we go? Does that need to be done at a governmental level? Does the British government need to, A, acknowledge and then B, pay reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans? Of course it does. Or we need to talk. That's the point. And, and the CARICOM nations, which is the sort of the grouping of Caribbean nations asked formally for talks to begin with 11 European nations back in 2014. And in Denmark, a bit in France, that is beginning to happen. Big story in the States as well, whose slavery ended only 30 years after ours. But that request to have a talk has been met with derision by by Britain. Jeremy Corbyn's 2019 manifesto mentioned it, but 
ask a Tory politician and they're like, oh, get over it, stop being victims, start, you know, this kind of stuff. And the reparations plan, and there is a bit on the book's website about this and what my family and others are doing. It's a bloodlegacybook.com. There's a page called Reparations. Uh, you know, it's a really interesting debate and, and a bit like Truth and Reconciliation in South Africa and a bit like what happened between Germany and Israel after the war. You know, it's not just about handing cash over. It's about fellowship and technology transfer and debt forgiveness and talking and scholarships and all those things. You know, people say, oh, they want $4 trillion for slavery, but that's something to be talked about. What's wrong with talking? And I'm really interested in that, not least because everywhere I went in the Caribbean, there's Scottish names and Scottish, you know, I was DNA testing people to see if I could find cousins. And I've got some African, enslaved African blood in me as well. You know, th- th- we have an immense fellowship, not just about cricket and the shared language. There's DNA out there. So there are ways forward, but they're also to do with white men like me shutting up and listening for a change. (laughs) But my wife and children would say the same, of course. (laughs) But we have these very active discussions at the moment around whether the National Trust should acknowledge its links to slavery. I had a fantastic conversation on the podcast a few months ago. Great for the National Trust. I joined the National Trust. Yeah, well, I had a fantastic conversation with Corinne Fowler, who'd been leading some of these investigations into links to colonialism and slavery, which, of course, were then very rapidly shut down. There's been the whole debate around the Rhodes statue in, in Oxford. And it's clear that instead of opening up and listening, at least, to the evidence that you and others are bringing forth, there is a powerful subsection of British society that wants this debate closed down now. Very powerful. They're running the country. And they've run the country for all but 15 of the last 70 years as well. No, the Conservative Party is about conservation. And and this particularly appalling iteration, the Conservative Party has decided to make the culture war or questioning our history central to the political debate at the moment, you know, which is absurd. Black Lives Matter movement opening up this history was, as far as I can see, entirely positive. And my children, one of whom is still at school, would say the same. The experience of trying to promote this book, you know, particularly in the Times, has shown me a really naked vision just in the comments, the mediated comments underneath the Times pieces. I'm going to publish them all into what middle white entitled England thinks and feels. And this is who this book is for, I hope. And it's a naive book written for people like me, I'd say, uh, to try and just wake up and, and actually get happier about your history and do something. My default, because I don't think the book will do, books don't do much, is they are dying off. This is a badly educated generation of entitled people who are dying off. And I look to my children and their generation for the work of making Britain a place more at ease with race and history and addressing inequality, which is what, in the end, racism today is about. Yeah, I'm going to end, if you'll forgive me, on a personal note. And my grandparents and my father's broader family were all killed in the Holocaust. After World War II, there was a programme of re-education for Germany. It was de-Nazified and people were very rigorously told, this is what we have done. 
this was wrong, this is how we need to be. I know people will feel uncomfortable about this analogy, but Britain has never been denazified. We have never, as a nation, acknowledged the wrong that was done in our name, albeit by our ancestors. We have never fully engaged with that. That has never been part of the curriculum. And we have never taken it on board as a nation that that was wrong and that we need, at some level, to do something about it. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the parallel's really good, Adrian, and thank you for bringing it up. I think, and this applies not just to slavery, but but the imperial project. But things are happening. I mean, there's great books like we mentioned, Satnam Sangira's Empire Land and so on. It, it, you know, there's a growing consciousness that, A, the multicultural Britain in which we live today is a product of empire and a great product. It's maybe the best thing about the place, but also a product of a racist empire that ran itself through racism and hid exploitation and called it benevolence and philanthropy needs relearning, as some academics put it. And we need to do that to arrive at a place where, as with Germany in the Second World War, the history is assimilated, shall we say, can never be erased, but acknowledged and has become a part of the making of a better future changing the consequences. So it's a project, and I think it's quite doable. Alex Renton there, the author of Blood Legacy, a book that is well worth reading. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. We're funded by subscriptions to the monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. Subscribers also support Byline TV and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's also where you'll find details of how to subscribe bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you next time.